Tabletop Unknown. Hello and welcome to Tabletop Unknown, the show where we playtest lesser-known tabletop RPG games. I'm Will, one of your co-hosts of the show. And I'm Jesse, another one of your co-hosts of the show. So the idea of this podcast is that we choose a system, we test it with players, and then we talk about it. And this season, we will be exploring Fantasy Flight Games, Star Wars, Edge of the Empire. All right. So why are we here, Jesse? What, what brings us together? What? Why are we here? It's a big question. Um, <laughs> well, you contacted me, what, it feels like a few months ago now, it probably was. You know what? Time a few has months, lost all meaning. ten years, who knows, Jesse? <laughs> we, who knows? None of us know. <laughs> um, but you approached me because I have quite the experience with tabletop games um, and have played a lot of different systems. Absolutely. Um, And you haven't. um, And that seems like a good balance. Um, You were just getting into tabletop RPGs, aren't you? Yeah, so I just just dipped my toe in earlier this year uh, with yourself, actually. We we started a a beginner's D&D campaign, Dungeons & Dragons. um, And it just sort of got me a little bit curious because... You, when you hear tabletop RPGs, I think most people's initial thought is to go to Dungeons and Dragons. It's probably the most popular, would you say? Yeah, well, I'm. I, it's a, it's almost at this point now where people know tabletop RPGs more by Dungeons and Dragons than the actual term tabletop RPG. Yeah. You say Dungeons and Dragons, everyone knows what you mean, but you're not actually playing Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah. It's kind of like how, like in Australia, band aids are like. Uh, they're, they're the brand, but we call them Band-Aids. Yeah, or I mean. Eskies, or, you know, for other yeah. things. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and I think, um, you know, shows like Stranger Things have sort of reignited that popularity as well. Like, the, the main characters on that show play it. So I think that sort of brought it again into the sort of forefront of people's minds um, when they're thinking about what role-playing games are. Yeah, it's almost become cool again in a way, or or not cool again, but it's no longer as nerdy as it was. Yeah, because, absolutely. Because, you know, we have... Yeah. So many podcasts and real play podcasts and YouTube series of people playing Dungeons and Dragons with all these charismatic actors and voice actors and all these these great people that have just made it like more approachable and brought it into the forefront of entertainment, which is actually really cool. Um, but I guess we are also here because of the the D and D problem, the Dungeons and Dragons problem. Yeah, is that everyone thinks Dungeons and Dragons is the best or only option. And something that I found when I was looking into it a bit more after I dipped my toe in with Dungeons and Dragons um, is that there's actually a whole world out there of different games with different w- methods of playing and and different rules around this idea of a of a you know rolling dice and playing characters. There's like there's something out there for everyone, really. There is so many systems. There there is systems as big, if not bigger, than Dungeons and Dragons itself. I think the the next popular or the next most popular is uh, Pathfinder, and that actually is shares a lot of the same sort of systems as Dungeons and Dragons. Right. And then from there, there's there's even universal systems that you that that have just it's a complete skeleton of a system and you just put your own terms in and you create the you sort of finish off the system in order to play it in your own setting um there is singular pages of game systems that are so simple that you can just point at a thing say i'm gonna be this and then and you have two other people and you can start playing 
there there is so much out there. So I guess that's why we're also here is just to to highlight some of these lesser known systems. Yeah, and and I, I think that if more people knew just you know what variety was out there, that maybe the 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 game as a whole, like tabletop RPGs as a whole, would grow and we would have more time and more people to enjoy it with. Yeah, absolutely. Because Dungeons and Dragons isn't the end of it, and, and that is very geared towards very strict ways of play and a very strict uh, sort of fantasy setting. Um, it's definitely all the content out there is made for that fantasy setting, and there's games that do better things for different settings than applying Dungeons and Dragons to say a sci-fi setting. Dungeons and Dragons is great. We're not belittling it in any way. It's just there are other systems that do things better for different types of games. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I think that's the important thing to say here is that we're not against Dungeons and Dragons. I love it. I love playing it. I just want to look at some of the other stuff that's available and maybe turn to, you know, a friend who's not interested in fantasy but maybe is interested in Star Wars, for example, and and say, hey, let's play this tabletop RPG without having that, I suppose, um, not stigma, but, you know, the thought that Dungeons & Dragons is the be-all and end-all. Yeah, Um, which is probably why we've actually chosen Star Wars for our first sort of season, our first arc. Because the fantasy flight system is actually quite accessible, it is... In almost every hobbyist shop, um, any game um, store that you go into, like like you know physical game, not digital game, there is the Fantasy Flight Star Wars system there available for purchase. Absolutely, and that was something I certainly noticed as well. Which um, you know, like you say, you walk into the the ga- friendly local game shop, and it's Dungeons and Dragons, and it's Star Wars. And so, yeah, when we were having the discussion about what we maybe wanted to attack first, it seemed like the natural um, jumping off point, you know, because if we're not going to go with, you know, the biggest and most well-known, let's go with the second biggest and most well-known. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and even then, like, compared to Dungeons & Dragons, like, Fantasy Flight System has minuscule amount of players comparatively. So it's definitely worth now taking a look at. And hopefully, maybe this system you'll listen to and, and you'll listen to what we do with it and you'll like it and hopefully you'll go and purchase the content or get your hands on the content somehow and that would just be awesome. I guess what what we'll go on to now is just sort of how we're going to tackle at this concept in itself. So yeah. the structure of this season, the way it's going to work, is this first episode is just to sort of explain how Fantasy Flight System works. Um, how the system works, we're going to be talking about the, the dice, the big thing about this system, yeah. and also the characters and, and some... And we'll also... I can give you some tips as well. I've run this system now for, I think, six, seven, six years um, close to, and... I've learnt a lot and I've made a lot of mistakes. Um, so I will be able to jump in with some tips here and there for you as well. So that's our first episode. Then episodes, hopefully two to four, perhaps two to five, depending on how we go, will be our real play section where we actually put the system through a sort of mini arc with some players and and characters and we will approach that in a, in, in a, as much an entertaining way as possible. And then after that, we are going to debrief with the cast and just talk about what they thought of the system, um, what they liked, what they didn't like. Yeah, and then hopefully that's going to give you enough information that you can really have a look at that system yourself if you want to. And from that cast, actually, it's worth pointing out, we um, half of the players have played the game, the other half have not. Got a real um, mix of interest and mix of experience there, so hopefully we'll get some, um, some really interesting discussion happening. 
Yeah, exactly. And we really want to get in there and what do new people think of this? What do experienced people think of this? That sort of thing. Having said all that, I guess we should now jump into the system itself. So, Will. So, I have a bit of a a history lesson for all the history nerds out there. Um, So, Star Wars is a phenomenon. You, if you're alive, you've most likely heard of Star Wars. Um, Yeah, obviously the. You'd hope so. You'd hope so. Obviously the uh, the you know the original trilogy um, released in the 70s and 80s, then the prequel trilogy, uh, and then lastly the 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 sequel trilogy, I suppose it's called. Um, and there's actually been various iterations of a Star Wars role-playing game um, in existence since 1987. Um, so the first iteration was just called Star Wars The Role-Playing Game, and it was originally published by West End Games, like I said, in 1987. Um, and these, these books were actually um, quite pivotal in a lot of the development of some of the more... Um, well-respected expanded universe canon. Um, the the role-playing books were actually sent to Timothy Zahn as references when he started to develop um, the Thrawn trilogy, which... Um, wow. Yeah, which, uh, you know, again, if you have heard of the expanded universe of Star Wars, you've probably heard of the Thrawn trilogy and how, again, how widely respected um, that trilogy is. And the those materials, again adopted was adopted into other star wars canon they had names of alien races like the twi'lek the rhodians that that hadn't been named before um that were then brought into canon so the original the original iteration by west end games we actually owe a lot to in terms of that larger universe development um, so then in 2000, um, November of 2000, Wizards of the Coast actually purchased the rights to developing a Star Wars RPG and they, they built a game based on their D20 system, the, the system that Dungeons & Dragons uses. Um, throughout the 2000s, they released various books and source materials, um, but it became much more miniature focused um, as the years went on. Uh, and in 2010, they actually announced that they wouldn't be renewing their license, that they were discontinuing it. So this sort of left it open for Fantasy Flight Games to come in and acquire the license. And it, they acquired it around about August of 2011. Um, and when they acquired it, they announced two games that were going to be put into production immediately and released as quickly as possible. And that was Star Wars X-Wing and Star Wars The Card Game. Um, yes, that's right. So the the X wing is like full of miniatures, isn't it? It's almost like a Warhammer forty k. Yeah, hundred percent. It's all dogfighting based around these miniatures, and it's hugely, hugely popular. Um, they've released, you know, I don't think quite one hundred, but they've released, you know, tens and tens of expansions of you know other miniatures to add to it in these waves. Um, and they actually released a second edition in twenty eighteen as well. Um, so yeah, hugely, hugely popular. I don't think the card game was as popular. I think um, they actually have discontinued it now, which is a shame. But um, yeah, um, X Wing and Armada, which is the one that you know came along after X Wing, hugely popular. Um, so once these games were announced, they then announced Edge of the Empire, um, which was announced about a year later and released in beta format in 2012 um, with the official release of the core rulebook in 2013. It was designed by Dave Allen, Sean Carmen, and Jay Little, who are regular Fantasy Flight RPG designers. Um, they've worked a lot on the, uh, I think it's the Warhammer RPG that they have. Um, so yeah, and that's sort of where we are today. There's um, Edge of the Empire was released and a couple of other source books as well. Age of Rebellion and um, Force and Destiny followed after that. 
Yes, and there's about 12 other additional source books as well, smaller ones. So with this system itself, we do just want to say that it, it is best used for Star Wars. There is very little point in trying to adapt it to something else. We just think that that's worth mentioning because some other systems you can actually very easily adapt to other things. However, this particular system is so heavily geared towards the Star Wars universe and the Star Wars IP that it would be almost impossible, if not improbable, to adapt it to something else. If that makes you want to try it even more, go ahead. Let us know how you go. I'd be very interested. But um, yeah, stick to Star Wars with this. It, it is made for Star Wars. It works best with Star Wars. So Absolutely. And there's a number of reasons why that is. So we might sort of dive into it, I suppose. Yeah. So first up, um, as Jesse mentioned earlier, the, the, the dice is really at the core of what this game is for i suppose there's both strengths and weaknesses to that and people have differing views on on that because they don't use normal dice do they no so they actually have a pool of their own dice which was actually repurposed from the x-wing and armada game system really wow i didn't actually know that yeah so the 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 x-wing system and the armada system they use the same shape of dice with very similar systems um symbols on them um, so that's actually where their original idea for the for the new dice came from. Um, so I guess there's, talking about this dice, the, the first thing is, I guess we just need to define them for you. So there is, the dice are broken up into two sort of sections. There's the positive dice and then the negative dice. And then there is an additional dice called a force dice. The positive dice, these are the dice that your players will be rolling with. The, the biggest one is a dice called the ability dice. It is a green eight-sided dice. It has two symbols on it. There is a success symbol and there is an advantage symbol. The success is like an explosion, the advantage is sort of like a wing in a circle symbol, similar to like a Republic symbol, if, you, if you're familiar with Star Wars. These um, are used whenever your players are attempting to do something for ability checks, that sort of thing. This is their positive dice. This represents how good they are at something. The upgrade from that is the proficiency dice. This is yellow. It has an additional symbol on it called a triumph, which is essentially like a crit. We'll get into that system a bit later that is i'm pretty certain that's uh 12 sided and then the last of the positive dice is the boost dice which uh is a six sided dice that gets added for additional bonuses and that sort of thing from there there is the negative dice this is in direct opposition to these positive dice so opposite to the ability dice we have the difficulty dice this is the dice that you add based on how hard it is for a player to do something Um, It's an eight-sided dice with two symbols on it, a failure symbol, which is like a triangle, and then a threat symbol, which is directly opposed to the advantage symbol. Um, We then have the challenge dice, which again is is the direct opposite to the proficiency dice, and that has a symbol on it called a despair. And again, this is sort of like a critical fail, and we'll get into that system later. A good thing to mention actually now is that the critical fails and the critical successes do not cancel each other out, and that creates a bit of interesting um, moments in the game. And then the final negative dice is the setback dice, which is similar to the bonus dice in in that it gets added to the pool whenever something bad is particularly happening or if something is hampering the current action that is trying to be taken. Uh, The last dice is the force dice, which is 12... A 12, another 12-sided dice, which, which has on it dots of either one or two, black or white dots, which represent the light and the dark side of the Force. Um, this affects a few things, but the main system it affects is 
the destiny point system, uh, which we'll get into later on. But that that is the basic breakdown of the dice and what they look like. Yeah, so like when you're looking at it, it looks quite simple. Both positive and negative have three different types of dice. There's a six-sided, eight-sided, and 12-sided. The symbols um, really is what sort of, I think, confuses and maybe turns off a lot of people. Um, now, there is uh, a conversion table in the the game rules, in the core rulebook, so that you can use just normal six-sided die, I believe it is. Um, yeah, so there's there's a conversion table for every one of the dice. So it gives you one... So for the for the boost dice and the setback dice, there's a conversion table for uh, D6s, six-sided dice, ability for D8s and proficiency and challenge for D12s. And then the force dice, a D12, can also be altered. A good thing to mention about these dice as well, actually, is that almost... No, uh, yeah, every dice has at least one blank side, uh, which is very rare um, for, for tabletop games to just give you no result. It's a way of being good at something for a character and still not succeeding without it being a monumental failure. So so there is... Yeah, that's very interesting. Very rarely is there just a no result in tabletop mm. games. It's interesting that it, it can create like a storytelling or, you know, gameplay, role-playing um, outcome though. So I suppose that's an interesting thought that they've put into that. Yeah, it's very interesting. And it creates some issues. It does create some issues, um, however. And, and so when you're pulling your dice pool together you, you grab the positive dice which are representative of your player skill you're grabbing the difficulty dice representative of how hard the task is adding in the setbacks or bonuses depending on what happens and then you roll it all together from there you then cancel out the corresponding values so ability um, successes get cancelled out by difficulty failures um, difficulty threats get cancelled out by ability uh, advantages, and then there is the triumph and despairs. You calculate your dice pool. If you have more successes, you'll obviously get, gain those successes, and then your character succeeds. But then the threat and the advantage play a new role. The threat, if you have more of, it means you succeed, but there is some sort of cost or there is some sort of setback to succeeding. If you win... If you succeed with advantage, then you actually sort of get a small amount, like a small pool of value to then use and distribute among your players. So that player can go, okay, I have two advantage. I want to give a bonus dice to the next person who does a check, or I want to use all my advantage to perform a critical if it's an attack. Or you can even do things like, I actually want to spend this on the NPC I'm talking to and sort of gain advantages that way. So it's, it is a very unique system. Yeah, okay. Um, do you have an example of what uh, succeeding but with a threat might... Uh, sorry, was that it? Yeah. Uh, so sorry, despair might look like? Okay, so yeah, the despair and the triumphs, again, they are one more stage different, and they really get complicated because there's not a lot of examples in the actual game system, and I think this is where it sort of falls short. But um, the triumphs... I'll start with the triumphs because the triumphs are quite unique. So for every different thing that you could possibly roll a triumph on, whether that's a skill check or an ability check, there is unique results for that thing. For example, if I'm doing a negotiations check with a vendor selling some sort of thing and I'm haggling for a price to drop or, or, or for 
you know, show us where the real goods are, that sort of thing. If I get a um, triumph, even if I fail in this attempt, that player can then make that vendor a recurring NPC with that triumph. They can spend that to do that. Right. Okay. Yeah. Now, with the despair, if we look at that same example, what that might actually do is you get closed off um, to that vendor, but also that vendor will tell other vendors not to do business with you. So that's the sort of thing that you can that can happen. You might get, and even if you succeed with this despair, you might get that discount that you so hardly you know bartered for, but they will never deal with you again, and they want you gone as soon as possible. Do you know what I mean? So, like, it creates this really interesting dynamic. And this, I think, is one of the really good parts of this system is because it just really changes up the results and and really makes you consider, well, how much is it worth trying to succeed when I can still come off in a, like, with a negative? So it really creates a better narrative and a a really interesting narrative force behind the whole game. Yeah, I actually really like that. Like, um, the dice when I first initially looked in the game, kind of freaked me out a little bit. But now that you've explained it like that, it's actually, I'm really looking forward to seeing what sort of outcomes we have and how that might impact on our our world that we're building. It is so interesting. There is, again, I have played this game for about six, seven years now and as a DM running it. And I still get so excited when a triumph comes up because it might not have been a check I have ever seen a triumph come up on. I'm so excited that I get to see this new event that hasn't happened yet. Because there's something, there's like 21 skills or something. And, and, you know, to get through them all, some of them are very rare uses, that sort of thing. Like, you never know what's going to happen. Moving on, though. So so now that we've explained the dice, we can sort of get into the difficulty of the dice. So the way it works is when a challenge comes up and your players have to roll against something, there is definitely a difficulty associated with that. That difficulty is represented by the amount of purple dice. The purple dice are the only negative pool put in when dealing with uh, non, non, non-player non characters. So anything in the environment, um, anything physical, interacting with the world that isn't people, essentially. You, you're using the difficulty dice, you're not using the red one. Don't worry about the red ones. Um... So, so for, sorry, an example of that might be like if you're trying to jump over something, or yeah, correct. If you're trying to jump a something. gorge, yeah, okay, if you're yeah, to, cool. yeah, if you're trying to jump a gorge, uh, sneaking past something is actually there is the possibility for the red dice because someone could be that's, quite that'd be an NPC, yeah, yeah, it could okay, be quite cool. perceptive and that sort of thing. But so you only really need to worry about the purple ones for everything else that aren't people, essentially, or, or humanoids in this instance. Basically. From there, you can use up to one to five. And as a DM, you have to decide how difficult something is. So obviously just jumping over a small gap would be one or two difficulty, depending on the person. But like trying to clear a like nigh on impossible 30 foot gap jump with just a sprint is considered impossible. So you're going to use the five full dice. Um... And even if they succeed, it's like, okay, they have somehow succeeded this impossible task. How do I need to, how do I need to sort of fix this? How do, how, how do I make this make sense 
in a dialogue, in, in, in narrative and, and, and reference to the real game setting. That's uh, the never-ending saga of the DM, isn't it? <laughs> yes, it is. So obviously you have these problems anyway, but if something's really difficult, you can just say, well, no, you can't attempt this. You, you, it is not possible for you right now. Or you could just go, yeah, make an impossible check. Five difficulty, please. Um, yeah, y- yeah it, it's really up to you. Um, but yeah, essentially you have um, that decision to make as a DM. How hard is this thing? On on a scale of one to five, and then you can go from there, or even six. I think you can. In some cases, you can go up to six. But when you're dealing with other NPCs, then the red proficiency dice come in. When we get into characteristics, we'll explain why. But essentially, that gives the opportunity for the party or players to experience one of these despairs, or for the NPC to essentially succeed over the player. And this is the other really interesting thing about this dice pool. You can come up with flat nothing. Everything can cancel out and there can be no value. If there, if that happens, it is a flat fail. There is no success, no advantage, no despair or triumph. You just do not succeed in the most simplest way possible. Yeah, okay. So you do still need to beat those values, um, which actually puts things, depending on the dice pool, uh, it puts things... Against the players, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like it's yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. It's sort of it's always against, against. Yeah, yeah, in a way, in a way. Anything where the dice pool is comparable, uh, so three, three negative, three positive. It's always going to be in favor of the negative. So your players actually, it actually forces your players to keep attempting the things that their characters are good at. Yeah, that's actually really interesting. It does require you to have a deeper knowledge of your character and its abilities and its its um. Uh, you know talents and all that sort of stuff which yeah it's not something i say i must say i don't really consider that a lot when i'm playing D, for example i just sort of do what i like to do you know yeah so, um yeah okay this is actually really interesting yeah it, it is it is and again this is one of the things the system does well it really forces the players to think about and take on roles a bit a bit more so, moving on from this, though, there there is a few more checks that you can do. So, obviously, these are just, like, the normal characteristics and skills ones. Um, the, way, the way they're chosen is how high a characteristic is determines how many dice you use. Um, that's, that's very sim- simple. Um, and then, from the skills, the skills are derived from an attribute or a characteristic. So, for example, if you're character has four agility anytime they do a coordination check they will be at least rolling four green dice against whatever difficulty that's how basically works yeah um okay that's the basic ability check um from there there is a few other checks there's opposed checks which essentially it's when a task is more difficult um it, it it is the um player versus NPC in a sense. So so how we described before where someone trying to sneak past, that is when you add in those red dice because it is essentially another person's value being represented with the negative dice. Okay, yep. So, yeah, so that's the opposed checks. The competitive checks are a bit like a bit more difficult. It's when two players are trying to achieve the same thing in competition with each other. So uh, a quick example is like an arm wrestle. Right. Okay. Yeah yeah. 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 They still with the with those checks, they only roll. Um, I'm pretty sure. 
the like it's based on the difficulty of the thing that they have to beat. They they're both doing the same thing in the one pool. So it's it's actually about who succeeds higher opposed to just failing. Right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So and then I'm pretty sure you can also use any threats generated against the other player and that sort of thing. It, it, it's yeah, the competitive checks Getting into them, uh, there's, there's really no point. It's only going to come up so much. If you're interested in them, check them out in the source book. Um, and then there's the assisted checks, which is the assisted system is is one more thing, just that little um, sprinkle on top to the check system, which really um, promotes teamwork within the game, which is really cool. So some tasks are like challenging, challenging enough that you actually need help. Um, and with that help, players can offer to assist them. So... If someone is more skilled than another player, that player can then take the higher characteristic or skill from another character in order to do the task. Interesting. Yeah. So if one person is better at shooting in a turret, but they're not the one in the turret, they can instruct the player on what to do and then take their value and use that in the dice pool instead of their own. And that's okay. all. Yeah, so it's a way of like promoting teamwork. And then you also have from that is the inverse, which is unskilled assisting, where it's just sometimes two brains are better than one. And you can essentially, if you are not skilled in that skill, like you have no points in that skill at all, you can actually give a bonus dice to someone who does have skill in that. And that way, it's a way of sort of tackling a problem with a different brain. It's sort of how the game represents that sometimes you just need a different set of eyes or, or something like that. So that's, um, yeah, that's great. I suppose as well as encouraging teamwork, it encourages players to maybe create a team that is ba- uh, like across different roles to try and sort of balance out some of those skills. Absolutely. And, and balancing generally sort of falls under the DM's job, but, um, with this system, it actually allows the players, if you were to give them the opportunity to go away and make their own characters together, informing each other what they're doing, they could actually do that themselves because of this, because of these check systems that, that allow you to do this. Like there's, there's so much malleability in this game with these different assists and checks. You don't always need to be there. You don't always need to be the person doing the thing you're good at because you can help other people do it as well. Which is a bit more realistic. I really like that, yeah. It's really cool. Um, And then I guess the final thing to talk about in the dice and the symbols and and sort of the base mechanics of the game is the destiny points. Um, This is one of the coolest systems, I think, because it's very simple and very easy to use. So I'm just going to go over how the destiny system works. Um... Basically, at the start of every game, you roll the that force dice that we mentioned earlier, this white dice with the dark and light side on it. Um, but the the points are like a resource that the players get to use. Um, because essentially the way they talk about it is the force is connected to everything and there is a destiny that must happen. And, and these destiny points are a way of characters and the GM to sort of... Um, push and pull destiny in the way they want it so the pool is always sort of the same for everyone 
every session. So, like, each player rolls a force dice. The, the, the GM does not. Um, and the results of the force dice are tallied together. Uh, so, for example, if a player rolls a light side symbol, he adds one light side destiny point uh, to the pool. And if a player rolls two dark side, they roll two dark side symbols to the pool. Um, once set, this pool does not change for that session. There is actually an alternate rule set which gives a which gives a ever changing pool, um, which essentially gives the the DM the opportunity to use it. But I'll, I'll get into that in a sec. The players roll and generate new destiny point destiny pool like every every session essentially. Once it's fixed for that session, they can change inside of that number. So if you have four players and they all roll this this dice and they each only get one one of the values, whether that's dark or light, come up. That means you only have four points for that whole session. That's it. Um, how do you use these points? This is this is the this is the bit that it gets into. This is any time. Um, so players use the light side, and the DM generally uses the dark side. Basically, you can use it in a number of ways. You can use it to call on destiny, as they say in, in the book. You can call on destiny and spend a point. Um, to upgrade one of your dice. So any green dice you have or are using, you can use a destiny point to upgrade that to a yellow dice. What that does is there's more chance of success. There's also a chance of a triumph this way. You can uh, raise the stakes by sort of calling on destiny to make an opponent's check harder by essentially upgrading the difficulty, changing the purple dice to red for that uh, character's attack or something like that. Um, some special abilities and talents require the use of destiny points to activate. Then the last sort of one is luck or, or deus ex machina. You can spend points to sort of evoke some sort of additional thing coming in and changing the course of the game or changing the course of events that are happening, which is very, I think I I actually love the destiny point system because you can use it narratively. And I use it all the time, and it should... The the one thing the book talks about in terms of these destiny points is that encourage your players to use them as much as possible. I suppose if if they're being re-rolled every session, then you wouldn't want to leave any because you can't use them in the next session. So you would want to make sure you use up the pool. Is that right? Yeah, there's no point in saving these points because that pool is completely gone. It's By the next session, it's, it's completely new. So for every light side point they use, it gets converted to dark, and then the DM can use those dark points in the same sort of way at, to push and pull the game system as they like and push and pull the narrative as they like. Make things harder, make things easier, um, what have you, f- for whatever you want. But the, the I don't really use them for the mechanical side. Very rarely. Okay. I use them for the narrative stuff. Yeah. Well, that's what it seems, even though it is sort of, I suppose, designed to help the mechanical stuff, it does seem like you can... It, it would the richer use of it is to use it narratively, like what you're saying. Yeah, it's it is it is absolutely. And there's so many times where if I think my players are having an easy time in a in a particular fight or something like that, I will spend destiny points to introduce new challenges or uh, more enemies or or unique events in that system just to keep it alive and keep it interesting so they're not steamrolling through everything. It's really just a way that the players can quantify your actions as a DM as well as their own. And this way they consider a bit more that like they can go hell for leather and use these points in every single role, 
but that gives the DM the, that essentially gives all the points to the DM, and the DM can be like, "Cool, you've you've used this and you've succeeded. That's fine. I'm going to use a point now to make this check harder. I'm going to use this point now to bring in more enemies. Uh, I'm going to use another point to make them more heavily armored, and I'm going to use my last point to make a lot of them." Yeah. And now you're fighting a new group of very hard enemies that are very geared up, but you do all have you have all the points now, so. It's a constant back and forth this way. Yeah, it's just fun. It's quite thematic in a sense, though, because, like, I mean, Star Wars and the Force is all about balance. and um, Yeah, absolutely. And so it, it fits in with the universe, which is fantastic. That's the thing. It's all about balance, and it, and it does balance the game really well. If you have someone that's overpowered, you can use these Destiny points to, to balance that overpowered person out in a particular moment. Obviously, you don't want to take too much away from them, but it just gives you this opportunity of getting things back on track, introducing new concepts really easily, that sort of thing. Yeah, cool. Well, we might move on to the next section then, if you're um, happy to do so. Yeah, please. All right, so next up, we're going to talk about um, characteristics and skills. I suppose the the beauty of Star Wars and the beauty of that rich, lived-in universe and all of that you know, um, extended universe canon... The beauty of that is that there is so much to draw on in terms of making your characters. Now, I don't know if we've already said it, but for the purposes of this season, we are only using the core rulebook of Edge of the Empire. There's a ton of expansions out there, but even just the core rulebook um, gives you so many species and and roles that you can use to create your characters. Um, So there's eight species. We have Bothans, Droids, Gans, Humans, a.k.a. the most dangerous game, Rodians, (laughs) Transdotians, Twi'lek, and Wookiees. And each of these characters has this really beautiful, like, flavor text and um, descriptions and and what the society is like and the homeworld is like. So even if you're, I suppose, never like not going to play this game straight away, I'd still recommend getting the core rule book and having a read of it because I think it's just wonderful some of the some of the thought that's gone into these character designs and descriptions. There's there's so much cool stuff in there as well which can teach you sort of how to play the game if you're not really big into role playing. In the race section about Trandoshans, they talk about that Trandoshans can speak basic, like galactic basic, which is the most common language. However, because of their mouths and the way the way their their body works, they produce a lot of s's and like snaky sounds like they're a lot of they talk in a lot of hisses and stuff so like they it can even help pl- people that aren't comfortable with like being a different character just to give them like a little something to work with yeah like it's not a it's not a major character thing that you you really have to sort of live in but it is something that you could dip your foot in and go i'm gonna give this a try and i'm gonna play with this um yeah it's uh, it's quite it's quite wonderful really and so those are the species. And then we also have a, a number of um, sort of classes um, or roles. And each role has its sort of sub, a sub role. So we've got bounty hunters. We have the colonists. We have the explorer, the hired gun, the smuggler, and the technician. And like I said, each of those roles um, or um, has like a sub role. So bounty hunter, for example, has assassins, um, gadgeteers, and survivalists. So, all up, we have um, about 18 different uh, careers or roles that, that a, a character can play. Um, so, it's re- again, it's really rich. It's really detailed. Again, I really recommend grabbing the book if you're interested in having a read through. Jesse, what sort of, I suppose, how do these roles differ in terms of their skills and in terms of 
um, their talents. Yeah, so each one of these classes, if you will, they, they're called careers. And within that career, there is sort of three versions of that career itself. The way these careers are sort of defined by the game is what they take as their career skills. So if we want to find another one of these examples, I'll just go down to... It was Bounty Hunter you said, wasn't it? We'll talk about the Bounty Hunter really quick. Um, The Bounty Hunter um, has these three options. What were they? Assassin, Gadgeteer, and Survivalist. From the start, the career skills for the Bounty Hunter are Athletics, Brawl, Perception, Piloting, Planetary, Piloting Space, Ranged, Heavy, and Streetwise, and then finally Vigilance. So the Bounty Hunters will all have an advantage whenever using these skills, right? Yeah. However, from there, the Assassins specifically, they get some bonus skills that they get to choose from, which is Melee, Ranged, Heavy, Skullduggery, and Stealth. Now, you don't get all of these, but you get to choose, uh, I think it's like four career skills and then two bonus career skills. And that is your way of really differentiating your characters, like what your character has done to earn their proficiency in their class. So, like, you might not choose uh, Brawl for one of your class skills because your characters never had to fight with their fists because they use knives a lot more, that sort of thing. It's just a way of like going, okay, I can look at my backstory, I can look at my character and look at what they would actually be good at without shoehorning them into like a generic class or something like that. It gives you like this massive customization ability. So that's the that's the real first thing. That's what differentiates these classes straight off. Um, the next part about the classes or the, the careers that, that is really cool and, and it's probably one of the standout features is the talent trees. This is as video game as this system gets, where you have a page of talent trees for each subclass, so that's 18 total, of trees which you can spend experience points to go down down in. And these are the... Essentially, these are the unique abilities to the class. Um, there are some generic ones like improving your health, improving your strain, which is sort of your non-lethal health. Um, and stuff like that. But then you have the active skills of that class, which you can then spend um, some sort of resource, whether that's destiny points or advantage or successes, to trigger these abilities. Um, and and that is what differentiates the classes. Um, so going back into this Bounty Hunter example, um, one of the assassin abilities they get is called Quick Draw which once per round, they can draw or holster their weapon as an incidental action. So that's really good, because generally drawing requires a character's movement um, or maneuver ability. They're called maneuvers in this. Um, so yeah, that, that is, they're the differentiating thing. So, and it's very, the, the talent trees are very clear in their cost, very clear in what they do. As you go further down the trees, things cost more. Um, and the more powerful abilities are further down. But yeah, this is your way of differentiating. Um, any, and, and in further source books and the unique source books for each new class or an expansion of the class, they have a thing called signature abilities, which are essentially attached to the bottom of the talent tree. And these are like your super ultimate mega move, whatever they might be. I'm pretty sure one of them for the Explorer is Absolute Mobility, where they can essentially just take... I think, up to four manoeuvres a turn 
when you're usually the max you can do is two. So that like they've it's so unique to this system, and it, it's one of it's really one of the crowning jewels I think of the Star Wars system, this fantasy flight system is this talent tree. It's interesting that you described it as video game-esque because I think that actually is really accurate, but it also makes it really accessible. Um, so, like, having it all laid out there in a lovely sort of, you know, grid that that is easy to read and easy to look at, you know, what you should be doing and where you should be going next, I think it makes it really quite um, quite accessible for new pa- uh, new players, also younger players, perhaps. Yeah, absolutely. And the good thing about all these abilities is, and I think this is where D&D sometimes falls short, is there is no values, there's no numbers involved with this system necessarily. The, the numbers are representative of how much dice you're going to roll. And then the closest thing you get to like actual math is like 4 plus 6 minus 2 when you're doing damage and that sort of stuff. Yeah. So, like, this whole system is built around not using numerical values and, ju- and just, like, real basic counting. So it, it is really accessible for even young children. It's really easy for them to grasp and really easy for them to understand because they just go, well, I know that symbol gets rid of that symbol, so that's done. Um, yeah, so it's really simple um, and really accessible. Um, just quickly, while we're in the character section, I just want to talk about the characteristics themselves and the skills. Just I'll go over some of the more interesting ones. So the characteristics you get, these are like your really basic level stuff. So brawn, um, that represents your physical strength. Agility is your physical speed. Intellect is how smart you are. Cunning is how tricky you are and how wise you are. Um, Willpower is how mentally strong you are. And then presence is obviously your charisma, your charm how charming you are. So these are the six sort of uh, base characteristics that then determine how good you are at every single one of the skills at a base level. So you apply your characteristic number. So the basic, so the average is two. So if you are in a two at something, you are average at it. So you will have two dice for, let's use perception as the basic one. If your cunning is two, then your perception is two. However, if you have this as a career skill, the amount of ranks you take or how many times you tick perception in the character generation is how many additional bonuses you will get to perception. So if I end up with two ranks in perception and I have a cunning of two, every time I roll for perception, I'm actually rolling two yellow dice, not two green. And that is how you upgrade the dice. And that that is the real basic system here. Um, I will just quickly go over some of the skills that are a bit more not straightforward um, that aren't in other games other than the Star Wars game. So yeah, sure. astro- Astrogation is probably the first interesting one. That's how you navigate through the stars and in ships. Coercion is for like any any um, negative way of like convincing someone of something or getting them to do something like threatening them, hurting them, that sort of thing. Um, cool. Now this is the interesting one. Cool and... Vigilance. They're the two skills that determine who goes first. Cool is when your party, your characters are initiating the combat. Vigilance is if they've been surprised into combat. It's a combat they weren't expecting. So they're the two different ways you can start combat. When you start combat, you just roll the skill flat. And then whoever has the highest value of the cool goes first. Obviously, your enemies if they are unaware, are rolling with vigilance. That way, it's a way of like, again, there's always going to be two sides to this fight. 
So even if both parties are ready, they're both rolling cool, and then it's the highest values of your cool. So maybe your character isn't as prepared for things or isn't as ready to sort of fight as other people are. So they might have a stronger fight or flight response, however, and their vigilance is really high, which means they're more prepared to act quickly. So that's another really cool thing that this system does. It's not just an, an initiative value that determines how fast someone is in into battle straight away. It's, it's, I think that's quite unique. Yeah, it's definitely unique. I think calling it cool is probably not a great thing, though. It just makes me, <laughs> yeah. it invokes images of, like, the Fonz saying... Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's like, hey, how- Jabba, hey. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> How cool are you? I'm about a four, so like Fonz or like Han Solo, yeah. Um, further from there, we have discipline, which is like how how easily you conform to sort of like militaristic stuff. It, it, it's sort of like um, discipline of mind as well. It's sort of the resistant trait to um, coercion. Lightsaber, obviously using lightsabers. Law is like your sort of history equivalent. Then you have like a bunch of different knowledges which are specific to areas. So the outer rim is knowledge specific to the outer rim of the galaxy. Um, Then there's sort of the more combat orientated ones. So there is two forms of piloting. So piloting planetary and piloting space. Obviously one is ships, one is vehicles on planets. Then you have ranged heavy and ranged light. So heavy is like big guns and then light is like handguns, that sort of thing. Resilience is sort of like how well you can take things. That's a very rarely used skill, sort of like resilience to poison, that sort of things. Um, the last two I want to go over is Skullduggery. This is like anything sneaky, um, like lockpicking. Lockpicking might even be mechanics sometimes, but lockpicking, lying, um, finding illegal things, that sort of thing. Or, sorry, Finding legal things might actually be streetwise, which is the last one I wanted to touch on. Um, streetwise is sort of like... It's exactly what it sounds like. It's how streetwise your character is. Like, what do they know about the world opposed to actual knowledge? And it's reflected in the fact that it uses the cunning um, characteristic instead. Uh, yeah, which right. I, it's, it's a way of giving players that aren't intelligent a way to know things. Because I I often find that a lot of characters with intelligence, like high intelligence, they'll know a lot of stuff and they just have an answer to everything. But characters that don't have that intelligence score, they sort of fall short, even though they're a functioning member of society. You know Mm. what I mean? So streetwise is the way this system combats that. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So it gives gives the players an opportunity to know things and do things based on their experience in the world opposed to what they know. And that is the one difference. It can actually be... Streetwise can actually be used as a physical skill. It's not just like a knowledge skill. It can, it can be used in, in a general sort of op- optional um, varying ways. So yeah, yeah. Like I suppose like knowing to go to the bar and like ask for... Someone else. Someone or, yeah, yeah. Or like asking for a drink that doesn't exist to get you into the, the back room. That yeah, sort of thing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So it's really unique in that way. The last... Uh, from from all that, the last sort of thing we'll touch on is the derived attributes. So this is sort of like the last sort of mechanical part of this system that we haven't really explained properly yet. Um, so the derived attributes, if you've played a tabletop before, you know what that means. Essentially, it's you're taking the characteristics to determine other um, skills. So there's only, uh, I think, four we need to touch on. So defense, 
is the first one. Defense you can get from armor as well, but there's two types. There's ranged and melee. Um, anytime someone attacks you, you add your defense value of setback dice. So if you're good with swords and you have a sword, you might have a defense rating of of one in your melee section. That means whenever anyone's fighting against you with another sword, they have to include your melee defense. It's just a way of stacking things in your favor if you're particularly good at something. Yeah, right. Um, your soak generally comes from your brawn and an additional armor. Soak actually mitigates all damage that hits you. For example, if you have a soak of four and I hit you for six damage, you will only take two damage because of your armor or your brawn. Right. Another yeah. really interesting system. It's a. It's because there's no sort of armor class that determines whether someone hits or not. It's it's based on success or failure of the actual of the actual roll. That, yeah. Like it's not actually like you need to beat a value. You, it's just you need to not miss. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, so that is their way of mitigating damage for someone who can hit you really easily is soak. It's a, probably one of the better systems I actually think. Um and the last one is your wound and strain threshold. So they're a common that's 10 plus your brawn for wound, I'm pretty sure, which is essentially wound is your health. You go down to 0, you die. Um and then strain is your mental health or, or like not mental health um uh, like <laughs> your 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 consciousness you're staying awake so it's how much how much like tr- i guess trauma you can take before being knocked out yeah it's like being being electrocuted being hit in the head without with a blunt object that isn't technically damaging you um so that's the other unique thing about this system is you have essentially two health pools uh, the strain you can actually spend as well to perform additional maneuvers as well. So it's another really cool thing about it, which you'll notice in the um, the the talent tree. If you if anyone out there has the book or is going to pick it up, you'll notice that it has descriptions of when strain should be applied to yeah um, succeed in certain skills. Um, so from all this, in sort of the action economy, I I, I forgot to write this down, so I'm just going to quickly do it now. The action economy is very simple. You have one action and you have one maneuver every turn. Maneuvers can be done, you can move between a range band, which goes from engaged, short, medium, long, extreme. That is sort of uh, just a, it's a way of denoting distance without actually giving value to it, so you don't need to do hard sort of calculations of like well he's 30 feet away but my spell only does 25 feet so he i need to get five feet closer so i'm gonna you don't have to do any of that it's just like he's in long you're in short you need to get closer it's just that simple you can move one range band with a maneuver easy you can do things like uh you can take a defensive stance so even if you don't naturally have defense you can be ready to defend um, you can aim a gun better, so you can take the time instead of moving to take aim and get a bonus dice to your next attack. And then actions are like attacking, interacting with objects, helping other players, sometimes ability checks, uh, that sort of thing, moving something, um, anything that involves like engaged action to do something. So they're the, they're the two options you get. One action, one maneuver. You can spend one strain to gain an additional maneuver, which obviously is kind of cool. You can have that. Do I do? Do I do this? But risk getting closer to unconscious. 
and exerting myself or do I not do this and try and last longer, that sort of thing. And then obviously there is an unlimited amount of incidental actions you can take. Talking to people, issuing commands, that sort of thing. That does raise a question, Jesse. Um, so yeah. you mentioned that strain is like another type of, of health points. Um, if you run out of strain, is, does that mean you die as well? No. So if you run out of strain, you actually go unconscious and you, you completely lose control of your character. And from there, a number of things can happen. But essentially, it involves with your party going, ooh, we need to protect them because they... If you are unconscious and someone attacks you, they... I'm pretty sure there is mechanics for resolving a critical hit easier or immediately on that person. So it, you you are in dire straits still, but obviously you are not going to die if it's just a normal thing that's happened somewhere else. But if you're in combat, it, it is a bit more precarious. Um, bit of a rough move attacking someone unconscious. Don't do that, kids. Anyone listening? Yeah, very rough. Don't, don't <laughs> attack someone who's unconscious. It's against the Geneva Conventions. You will go, you will go to court and get put away for war crimes um, <laughs> um but yeah and then the last sort of thing quickly oh we're running out of time um is the force rating so characters will naturally oh, races will naturally have a force rating this is directly um uh interacts with the force system now they've actually reworked the force system in an expansion called force and destiny so i don't actually want to touch on it that much um because they've already fixed it and they've done it better um, because it was a bit, it was a bit touch and go there for a while. I'm not going to lie; they they sort of really didn't do much with the force, and it wasn't that great. But they actually they did fix it up and gave it a lot more to do, and it's actually a lot more interesting now. But yeah, so using the force dice, you can actually um, activate force powers um, by spending the light side or the dark side, whatever you rolled, and then that pushed and pulled you towards the dark side and towards the light side. And that's sort of the alignment thing um, that gets put into the game and that's how it gets put in. You can do bad things, but it's, like, going to cost you. You're going to take more dark side points, so you, you, your GM will push you to do more negative geared things, that sort of thing. It's sort of a morality um, counter as well, the force dice in that sense. It's very easy to just go... Add a force dice in there and let's just see how bad this thing is. Or, you know, if you want to try and use a force ability, you can, but it's going to cost you the dark side of the force. Like, that that sort of thing. Yeah, okay. Again, really great thematically. It's just an, in- yeah, it's an interesting choice. I'll be interested to see how it plays out. Yeah, it is very interesting. Um, the next sort of last section, which is probably a little quick, we can get through it, um, is the character creation, like the char- the player character content, sorry. Um, so the first one I want to talk about is obligation. Now, this is like a really big thing in this game. Um, every single character has an obligation and they have an obligation score. Um, what their obligation is, I'll get into that in a bit, but you can choose to increase your obligation to start off with more experience to spend on your character. However, it means that you might come across some more problems if you increase it. So basically, obligation is what your characters are obligated to do. And the reason we're touching on this is because it actually does have mechanical interactions within the game. There is other stuff like um, like values and, and things like that that you can put down for your characters, but they don't actually interact with the game in a, in a mechanical way. Obligation does. So, everyone has to add their obligation score together at the start of a session, and then you roll for that... Uh, I think you roll a d100... Um, and then 
based on what number it lands on, I've got a, I've gotten ahead of myself. So if you have an obligation score of 15 in something, let's say you have a bounty on your head, right? And you are the first person on the left of your table. So you go around. So zero, uh, 1 to 15, because your obligation score of bounty is 15. 1 to 15 is you. The next person has an obligation score of 10 in whatever it is. So that means uh, 16 to 25 is their obligation, and so on. And then you roll a d100, and where it lands, that person's obligation is triggered. So in this example, we roll a d100, it lands between 0 and 15, the bounty is triggered, that obligation is triggered. That means, in that session, that person's bounty is going to come into play somehow. Whether that's they see that they, that they have a bounty on their head, a bounty hunter is trying to hunt them in this session, um, that sort of thing. So it's a really unique way of mechanically putting the character's backstory into the game and sort of not allowing the DM to forget that their players actually have storyline and backstory behind them. So it's a really unique system. Again, this this whole system is unique, and this is just another way of keeping it interesting. Yeah, and the the type of obligations that exist are really interesting as well. They range in sort of, I suppose, not severity, but they range in type. So you have like addiction um, obligations or family obligations, you know, duty-bound things. Um, So yeah, it's it's really, again, interesting flavor to add on top of this already interesting system. Yeah, there are so many, there are so many, and and even in in the expansions and the other source books, there is additional obligations um, and that sort of thing. And I'm pretty sure in Age of Rebellion, they have duties, which is sort of like similar to obligation, but it's more like you need to achieve this in in your missions to sort of gain things. And if you achieve or resolve your obligations, you can... Um, mitigate them and bring them down or increase them based on how they went and you can give rewards and stuff for that as well. So the obligations is a really fun, really cool thing. It'll be easier explained when you actually experience it when we go into the game and and actually start doing our real play content. Uh, we will do that little obligation at the start of the, of the, of the first episode of that section and, and we will see what happens and how that actually changes what I've written. So, um, <laughs> which will be exciting. Um, next is career skills and bonus skills. We've touched on that. We can skip that. Experience, really simple. You have a experience score. Um, when you create a new character, you start with like 80 to 100, depending on the race. And most of the base abilities cost five experience and then you can rank up. Um, so... This is a way without going into career skills that and the talent trees, you can actually increase what your character is good at. So if you want to have a character that is particularly good at sniping, but you don't have them in any sort of uh, sniping skill tree, or they're not, they're, not, they're not like a combatant necessarily, you can actually just put experience points into the ranged heavy skill to upgrade your dice anyway. Again, it's like another little touch of customization for your character. Um, and, and it's a way of still leveling up without directly putting points into those talent trees. So you have so many options when you level up. And, and the experience is just another way of doing that. 
and and almost every level up you are torn between well do i go down my talent trees or do i put more points into do i put ranks into my skills and that's sort of your choice there um the last thing to touch on before we before we before we leave the system is critical injuries this is probably one of the coolest parts of this system um so you can't naturally get a crit unless your weapon has unless you meet the criteria on the weapon that criteria is how much advantage you need to spend in order to do a critical some things the critical is 3 advantage some it's 2 um some it's 1 which is horrifying um some it's 5 so Whenever you succeed, you can then spend advantage to roll on this thing called the critical table. The critical table is very cool because it has the values from 1 to 100 with... uh, Sorry, 1 to 151 with unique features that happened when when someone gets critical. Um, For example, if you crit someone, you roll on the critical table and let's say you roll low, a 6 to a 10. So what that means is the player you you critical hit is slowed down and they may only act in the last initiative slot on the next turn. (laughs) So already a crit is is big, right? Yeah, right. So how... But also the cooler part of this is that when you get crit on again, you add to that value. So we've already been hit for 10, right? If we roll a 60 on the critical table, our critical isn't 60, it's actually 70 which is you have scattered sensors and you remove all bonus dice from skill checks until the end of the encounter. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it it gets worse and worse the higher you get. So if we have 60 now, let's say we hit 50. We get hit with another crit for 50, right? So that goes up to 110, which means we have a horrific injury, which means you roll on another table, which is called the critical injury characteristic table. And until you're healed you lose a characteristic by one point. So oh, you roll a D, you roll a D100, and then where it falls on that, for example, uh, 91 to 100 is willpower. Your willpower permanently goes down to one. Uh, down by one, sorry. And I mean, then, that's, uh, that's cool. filling me with anxiety just as the yeah, thought of that. It's, so. very, it's very cool. <laughs> and then the final sort of last sections are the best parts. And because it is, it is when your characters get so close to death, there is this massive risk, which is... Um, I'm going to le- read the last four out because they're quite cool and I love doing this. Um, so 20, 126 to 130 is a gruesome injury, which means you are permanently reduced by one for that characteristic in that table. It's exactly the same as the one I just described, except it's permanent. Bleeding out means you suffer one wound and one strain every round at the beginning of every turn. Um, and then if you get below your wound threshold and or your um, by five, you get another critical injury done to you, ignoring what you, you essentially start rolling on a new table. Um, if you're at bleeding out, it, oh, that's man. wild. Um, <laughs> the end is nigh, which is 141 to 150. Your character <laughs> dies at, in the oh, ne- no. in, after the last initiative slot of the next round. Oh, so, it's just... Oh, yeah. man. And then if you get beyond 151, you are just dead. You are done. Immediately. <laughs> I, was expe- 
I was expecting like your character's brought back to life only to be killed again. <laughs> <laughs> no, but like it's a way of like instant killing things. But the good thing about this system is even if you roll a hundred on your first roll, you cannot be killed. You cannot be crit killed in a single thing. What happens is uh, if you roll a hundred, you are crippled and your limb gets crippled and you need to heal it. Um, the gruesome injury one is fun because I use gruesome injury as. Uh, like a serious disability thing that's happened. For example, if they if they roll one to thirty and they hit brawn, their brawn goes down by one. I generally cut off an arm or a leg. Like that's that's what I that's what I as a DM do. And then that, the good thing is is the game has cybernetics available, so you you can replace them. But like in Star Wars, losing a limb is a big thing. Like it's it's in nearly every every episode of Star Wars movies. So you know like. It's there and it's a really fun thing to use. So, oh, that sounds great. But yeah, and then the ships, the ships have their own critical table as well of the same sort of things. Um, so very cool there. Another unique part of this system. I think we'll skip the ships. Will? Yeah. Look, it's um, it's probably not important for our sessions. No. Um, um, do you want to just give a brief overview though for those who maybe yeah. do want to include it in theirs? So the ships are a big part. Um, they are all, the, the ships themselves are almost like players. They have they have wound. They have strain in obviously reflavored for ships. Um, they also have soak the same way. So they are like characters. You sort of build them in the same way the characters do. The only difference is they have something called silhouettes, which is um, how big the thing is. Based on silhouettes, is how hard. So a, a, something with a big silhouette finds something with a small silhouette hard to hit and, you know, vice versa. Um, big silhouetted chips can hit big silhouetted chips. Small silhouetted chips can hit small silhouetted chips and big silhouetted chips, that sort of thing. Um, hard points are sort of like your gear for your ship, like your weapons and how many weapons your ship can hold um, and where they hold them. And then... You also have protection, which is a value your ship has, which you can upgrade, which it protects the people inside the ship and, and mitigates damage to people inside the ship. And then also ships have their own critical table as well. Yeah, right. So it's, that's it's, it's ships a, really quickly. It's another interesting uh, mechanic that, you know, if we choose to revisit edge of the empire again in the future, for whatever reason, that it might be, it might be worth exploring that a bit more fully. Um, but yeah, look, we'll, um, we're almost at the end of this episode, guys. So as Jesse mentioned before, um, our next couple of episodes are going to be the gameplay. It's going to be us sitting down and playing through and you'll be able to listen along with us there. Um, our DM for this session or our game master for this session is going to be Jesse. So thank you for yes. taking that on, Jesse. You're uh, welcome. And we also have three um, really wonderful players to join myself who will introduce themselves to you next week as well as their characters. Um, so, Jesse, what are we going to be playing next week? Um, so, we are actually playing um, a session written by myself and um, a friend of ours, Mitch. Uh, the reason that's important is because Mitch and I run a podcast called Dungeon Mastery, um, which is a podcast for levelling up your DM skill. Um, and we thought it'd be a fun little exercise to put our money where our mouth is, essentially, and, and write a session for this podcast. Um to sort of, yeah, like, have an exciting little, I guess, crossover episode. I don't know. Just, yeah, we, it was just something fun we both wanted to do. So we're, we're in the midst of writing that now, and we're about halfway through, which is very exciting. So, 
All right. So, um, Jesse, I look f- really looking forward to hearing what you and Mitch have, uh, have cooked up. Take it away. What are we looking at next week? Yeah, okay. So, this is the synopsis, everyone. Uh, Smoke and Dagger. Exciting. It's been five years since it happened. Your friend, mentor, and captain, a female Twi'lek by the name of Vizcoden, was taken. You still remember it, the clanging of smoke grenades hitting the concrete floor of the bar, the blaster fire searing through the dense fog, hitting you and knocking you onto your back, and the screaming of Vizcoden as they were dragged away by the bounty hunting mix. All of you, helpless and injured, you gave chase, but your injuries were too much, and you all saw her get detained and loaded into the bounty hunter's vessel, and watched as it jumped into hyperspace. In an instant, Vizcoden was gone. Until... Finally, after all this time, a friend of your captain got in contact with you all, telling you that they found where she was, held on display in Galgo the Hutt's dining hall, in a big slab of carbonite. You all gather for the first time in years to free your former captain, inside the bar you once lost her in, to come up with a plan. And there you go. All right. Sounds, uh, sounds exciting. I'm really looking forward to getting my teeth stuck into that. Yeah, get losing um, losing some limbs. Yeah, yeah. Great. <laughs> <laughs> hey, like you said, it wouldn't be Star Wars without it. No, that's it. So, yeah, I guess we will see you all next episode for Smoke and Dagger, a Star Wars story. See you next week, guys. Tabletop unknown.